We have a, uh, a tough passage this morning, as you know, if you looked ahead, and as you know, if you were here last week, uh, I, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning as we jump into it. We're going to spend uh, uh, a bit of time uh, developing some things, uh, some, some ideas that we see throughout Scripture, uh, uh, some themes that we see uh, throughout Scripture that apply to this text, that are very important for this text. Then we're going to dive into this text directly. So I'm going to move quickly this morning. I'm giving you a warning at the outset. It's going to be a lot. Uh, and, 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 and it's because this passage is particularly difficult. It's, it's maybe one of the most difficult uh, uh, passages in all of the New Testament, one of the most disputed passages in all of the New Testament. So if you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Last week, we, we began to look at this difficult passage at, at this final, or not final, at this uh, warning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is punctuated by these warnings about not falling away. As, as the author of Hebrews lays before us, the person of Jesus Christ is the one who's better than anything else, than any alternative, than any other way. Uh, it, the, the author of Hebrews also uh, punctuates that, uh, that teaching about Jesus, the one who's better, with these different warning passages. Don't fall away. Don't be lax. Don't, don't be lethargic. Don't be stagnant. And, and, and in fact, last week we looked at, at how he turns to his, to his hearers directly and says, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid about your spiritual stagnation. I'm afraid for the ways that you have, have, have not grown in the faith. You, you need to keep growing because there's no such thing as an adult who continues to feed on his mother's milk. We have to grow. And just as we have to grow physically as human beings, there's no such thing as a, as a, as a Christian who stops growing. Christians have to keep growing, have to begin to learn to, to not just feed on their mother's milk, but to eat meat. And part of what he talked about with that is, 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 is knowledge of who Jesus is and learning more about who Jesus is, but also creating practices in our lives that make us into, the, the, that cause us to be the kind of people who look more and more like Jesus Christ. What are the practices that we engage in? And, and, and we didn't get last week to uh, this, this continued method. Last week we looked at the, the confrontation and a challenge. The author gives a confrontation to his hearers and then he gives them a challenge to keep growing. But, but next he gives them a warning. He gives them a warning. We're going to read about that warning this morning in verses 4 to, to 8. And then we'll read as well... Finally, this, this encouragement that he gives them. First, he'll warn them, and then he'll encourage them. So let's read verses 4 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 6. This is God's word. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. When I was in fourth grade, I got my, uh, my first pocket knife. My, my, uh, my parents gave me my first pocket knife, which was very exciting. I wanted a, a pocket knife, and, and I was sitting there uh, on, I think, the day that they gave it to me. It may have been the day after, and I was whittling on something, and all of a sudden, my pocket knife slipped. I was sitting at the table, and I, the pocket knife went right into my leg. I actually still have a scar. Um, none of you will see it, besides <laughs> Bethany. <laughs> so right at the top of my leg, my, the knife slips and goes in. And I am, we're sitting at the dinner table, actually, my whole family. And I just kind of, I didn't want to lose my pocket knife. So I, so I looked around. I said, may I please be excused? <laughs> my parents taught me well to be polite. They said, yes. I went upstairs. I took off the pants I was wearing and realized that uh, blood was streaming down my leg. Sorry if you're squeamish. Uh, and, uh, and bandaged it up and went back downstairs. Hoped my mom wouldn't notice the hole in my pants. And resumed dinner. And the next day, my fourth grade teacher, uh, uh, we were sitting in class and, and she starts to tell a story. That, not kidding. The next day about a kid who cut himself and then didn't tell his parents and got gangrene. <laughs> to this day, my parents maintain that they knew nothing about it and did not tell my teacher to tell that story, although I don't fully trust them. I did not learn from that. I didn't tell my parents. Um, but I kept an eye on that. <laughs> On that cut. I did not get gangrene. I was happy for that. <laughs> there are times when, when we need to hear a, a story about something awful that has happened in order to jostle us into, into uh, actually believing or knowing or paying attention to the danger that we're in. And that's what the author of Hebrews does this morning. The author of Hebrews gives a warning that's not easy to read as you just saw, a very difficult warning to his people. And what it's meant to do is to jostle them into paying attention. He's, he's confronted them already. He's told them, this is the danger that you're in. He's challenged them. You need to keep growing. But now he warns them. This is what happens to those who fall away. I want to start out, as I mentioned, by looking at two truths, two theological truths uh, from the Bible that, 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 that affect the way that we view this passage. And then I want to zone in on this passage and talk about what is the author of Hebrews doing here. Does he say something different than what the rest of Scripture says? Or does he say something that fits with what the rest of Scripture says? The first truth I want us to look at is this. is that, that God's grace that works to save you will not fail to preserve you and equip you to persevere all the way to the end. God's grace that works to save you 
apart from anything that you have done, will not fail to preserve you and equip you to persevere all the way to the end. The second truth is this. There is a real danger in the Christian life of falling away. There's a real danger in the Christian life of falling away. How do these two truths come together? How can we affirm both of these things? Well, I hope we can dig into that and look at that this morning. But, but before we even start, I want you to know, like many biblical doctrines, like many things, there, there is some mystery here. God's providence, is, it, God's sovereignty is, is beyond what we can fully wrap our minds around. But, but Scripture gives us both of these truths that we will look at today and, and, and uh, think and consider how, how the Bible shapes us to to, to believe these things uh, in the Christian life and how this is, is transforming for us. So I want to begin by looking at the, the second truth that I mentioned. We're going to look at these truths in the reverse order. So the second truth I mentioned, there's a real danger in the Christian life of falling away. Okay, there are a number of ways that, that Scripture shows us this, that there's a real danger of falling away in the Christian life. I don't have time to go to all of these places, but the first one I want you to see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking uh, to the Corinthian believers, and he talks to them about the, the example of those who in Israel fell in, in the wilderness, who wandered away. And, and he says that they were examples, they function as examples to you and me. They function as examples to, to the hearers of his uh, letter in their day as well. And what Paul does is as he goes through and, and, and shows how uh, the people fell away and, and went away to things like sexual immorality or, or, or idolatry or, or, or other gods, serving other gods, not serving the one true God. He says, don't do the same things they did. Look at what happened. Then in, in, in verse 10, he says this. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Sorry, verse 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. He's talking to Christians here. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. It's the moment that we begin to think, I'm doing all right. I can do this myself. That's the moment that we need to immediately think, Lord, I'm in trouble. I need your grace. I need your help to sustain me. Take heed lest you fall. Then he says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not be, let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you hear Paul's urge there? Don't fall away. Don't act like someone who thinks you stand. Be aware of the danger of falling away. Or think about this. Think about G Jesus in the parable of the soils. Jesus in the parable of the soils. Jesus gives this parable, if you remember, he talks about four different soils. A sower who goes out to sow a seed, and the soil falls on four different kinds of soil. It falls on, on the path, where, where it's pretty straightforward. The, the seed is taken away, the gospel never takes root. But then there are these two soils where things seem to happen at first. Where the, soil the seed takes root at first, it starts to grow. Rocky soil and thorny soil. But eventually the... the the plant dies before it can bear fruit. The plant dies before it can do what it was meant to do. And, and, and it falls away because of the cares of this life. 
or because of the difficulties of this life, or, or because there was, there, was, there was no place for it to take root, it falls away. So Jesus talks about those who can fall away, and part of the reason he gives in this parable, uh, or part of the reason he gives this parable to us is to show us the need for standing firm in the Christian life, for not falling away, for being the good soil that bears fruit. Ezekiel chapter 18 Ezekiel 18, the prophet talks about those who have been uh, acting righteously, but then begin to act in sin, and they fall away. Now, Ezekiel 18 is talking to the covenant community of God, the whole community of God, but it's also talking, there, there's, there's something relevant here for individuals in the community, those who, who have been acting ri- righteously and then begin to, 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 to act unjustly to go against God's word and fall away. And Ezekiel 18 warns us that that, that this is not an issue with God's justice. This is an issue with our sin, that we can fall away. We should should beware of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul says two things there that are kind of encapsulate our, our difficulty here of reconciling these two truths in Scripture. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. How does that work? Well, we're going to continue to dig in and look. There are other places we could go. There are examples of those in Scripture who, who seem to, to fall away. Uh, Paul talks about these, these folks, Hymenaeus and Alexander and Demas. Uh, we think we read about false prophets and teachers in Second Peter who fall away. We, even the lives of David and Solomon in the Old Testament, uh, and Saul, for that matter, those who who have have fallen away in some sense. So the Bible continually talks about and sets before us examples that call us to stand firm, because there is a danger of falling away. The Bible doesn't just do this, though, by, by, by setting negative examples before us. It talks positively about what we ought to do in the Christian life. In each of the passages we just looked at, part of, part of the, the, um, the force of it comes from, of those passages, comes from the fact that, that, that God is telling us to stand firm. He's saying to the, the covenant community, those who are hearing, those who are in the church, look at these examples and stand firm. Look at these examples of, of what has happened when people fall away and stand firm in the faith. Don't fall away. It, it, he does this in several other places as well. Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 24. He, he talks about what's coming, but he says this, but to the one who endures to the end, that person will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not the one who falls away, but the one who endures to the end. It's the one who perseveres. There are many other places we could go. Jesus' words in John chapter 15 are, are particularly striking where he says, I am the true vine. Those who abide in me, those who stay in my love, those are the ones who, who, who are branches who are not cut off, who stay, who stay abiding with me, who continue in my word, who keep my commandments. If you read the book of 1 John, this is all over the book of 1 John. 1 John over and over and over talks about this. Just one example, 1 John 3, 6. uh, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those are hard words for we who struggle with sin. The Bible over and over and over tells us, persevere, press on, do not fall away. We've also seen this several times in Hebrews already. Uh, some other examples, if you're taking notes and want to write them down, 1 John 2, 4-6, 1 John 3, 24, 1 John 4, 12, and, and following Colossians 1, 21-23, and we could mention a, a, a number more that talk about the dangers of falling away. But I want you to, to, to see a second truth as well. There, there are two different truths here. One is, is that there's a real danger in the Christian life of falling away, but the other is that God's grace that works to save you will not fail to preserve you and to equip you to persevere all the way to the end. This is a truth that is all over Scripture, friends. It's, it's, it's in the Old Testament, it's laid out in the way that, that the new covenant promises are made. God, God made a covenant with his people and what he says in places like Jeremiah chapter 31 is that my people have broken my covenant, but, but I am making a new covenant with them. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Talking about the same covenant in Isaiah chapter 54, God says this, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. We could look at next week's passage that we're, that we're going to see in, in, in uh, verses 13 to 20 of chapter 6, where, where, where the author of Hebrews goes back to this unchangeable nature of God's covenant. God will not change his grace toward you. In John chapter 6, the verses Allison just went, read, Jesus talks about this specifically. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 6. I'm going to read these verses again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just a few verses later, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then again, toward the end of the chapter, Jesus says, once again, I will raise those who come to me up on the last day. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Then Paul in Romans chapter 8, and, and maybe the most clear teaching of this, I want you to hear Paul's words here in these glorious words. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. Now listen to what Paul says. For those 
whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are many other places we could go. The scripture teaches this over and over and over, that those who God graciously saves, he will graciously preserve. That he will hold you. His grace is enough not only to save you, but to bring you to the end. How does he do this? I want to mention, before we just focus in for just a couple minutes on our, on our passage this morning, I know this is a lot of, Groundwork. But, but, but I, wanted, I want you to see how God does this. He does this through his faithfulness uh, through Christ, his unchanging faithfulness. First Corinthians chapter 1 says, uh, The Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you. He does this through the prayers of Jesus himself. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, None of whom you have given me have fallen away. Romans 8, 34 and Hebrews chapter 7 uh, talk about Jesus standing before the throne, interceding for you and me, praying for you and me. When he tells Peter why he didn't fall away and Judas did, he, he tells Peter, I have prayed for you. Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. But he also does this uh, most significantly through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. God gives his spirit to those who trust in him. And he gives, it to, gives, gives his spirit to them forever. He doesn't take it away in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about this. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Then later in Ephesians, he talks about being sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Over and over and over, scripture talks about the fact that, that God's grace has, has 
called us, has, has saved us without anything of our own doing, without us adding anything to the equation, no kind of righteousness that, 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 that merits anything before God. God's grace has saved us, but, but it keeps us in as well. It sustains us. It's not as if God's grace brings us in and then all of a sudden it's up to us to stay in. But that God's grace is the, the thing, the only thing that we can rely on to sustain us throughout our lives. There are many other verses we could go to. Again, if you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 1, the whole, the whole chapter. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. 1 Peter 1. Romans eleven twenty nine, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Other places that talk about uh, God's sustaining those whom he has saved. So what do we make of this? What do we make of the Bible's teaching that Christians, for Christians, there's a real danger of falling away. And at the same time, the Bible's clear teaching that the Lord God not only saves us, but sustains us by his grace. And that we will persevere. That is, that is where our passage leads us this morning. In, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, just one, one final verse from another place in Scripture, verse John chapter 2, John is talking about those who, who went away from the community, the covenant community. He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they, have been of, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What John is saying here is, is those who leave the covenant community, that it becomes clear in their leaving, in their falling away, that they were not of us. They were not truly those who, who had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there are difficult things in this passage. There are, uh, this is not, it is not easy in fact, scholars disagree on what exactly this passage means, but, but I want to lay before you a case that, uh, that that is what this passage is teaching. That this passage teaches us that for us as Christians, we need to hear this warning that there's a real danger of falling away, and at the same time, that this passage does not contradict the idea that's laid clearly out in the rest of Scripture, that God will sustain those who he has saved by his grace. So let's look at, at what the author says here. He says, for it is impossible. Impossible, uh, some people have tried to lighten that, say, well, it's really hard. No, the, the word here means impossible. <laughs> Just a couple verses later, the, the author will say, it is impossible for God to lie. In the same way that it's impossible for God to lie, what he's saying here is that it is impossible to restore again those who fit these five characteristics that he gives. He lives out, uh, lays out five characteristics five participles in the Greek if you're interested in that kind of thing um, he says uh, uh, um, or, or he gives these five characteristics and, and as we look at these five characteristics here's what I want you to keep in mind that the author of Hebrews sees salvation as something that's that's both present and future and he's already shown us this in, in a number of places in chapter 3 he talked about holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling and then he says, we are his house, we are Jesus' house, if indeed, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So he's already said, those who, who hold fast are the ones who are truly those who are, who are part of the house of faith. 
Uh, he says this in a number of other places we don't have time to look at, uh, in chapters 3 and 4 especially. But then he, he, he's also, one thing that the author of Hebrews has done throughout the book is he's shown that he's not omniscient. <laughs> he's not like God. Yes, God inspires these words, but the author of Hebrews is not omniscient himself. What he, what he makes clear throughout is that he does not know who's saved and who's not and is not trying to know who's saved and who's not in the covenant community. He gives these words to everybody in the church community. And, and, and he, says, he says things like, if you hold fast, if you persevere, if you remain firm to the end, then you are experiencing these, this grace that God has given you of salvation. If you hold fast. So, so the author of Hebrews, he, he doesn't claim to know who's holding fast or who's going to hold fast. But he talks to a group of people who, who, he doesn't, he, he, who, who are mixed in that way. That they are not, uh, not all assumed to be believers necessarily. In, in, in our passage this morning, in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire that you each have that. But he doesn't necessarily say that everybody does. The author knows, as the rest of the New Testament does, that there are those who claim to know Jesus, but whose life will not bear that out. You can't claim to follow Jesus and reject him in the way you live. There's no place in the New Testament where I can have prayed a prayer earlier in my life and then live a life that's in total rejection of Jesus and expect to see myself as having some kind of assurance of salvation. That's not a category in the New Testament, which is, which is hard and difficult because we probably all know people in that very situation. And we hope, we, we want, we, we, we pray that they would come back. What the New Testament teaches consistently is that there's not, there's not a category for those who, who just prayed at some time, said they believed this, and now have totally rejected it. But those who are saved will persevere. Those who are truly followers of Christ are actually disciples of him, actually walk with him. So these five characteristics that the author gives us uh, here in this chapter, I want you to see how he talks about these things. First, he says they're enlightened. They were once enlightened. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. This suggests that they've heard the message of the gospel, the light of the gospel. In John chapter 1, uh, John talks about the light shining on all men. It's an understanding of the gospel. It's a deep understanding of the gospel. Uh, uh, Justin Martyr, an early Christian uh, father, talked about this as, as having been admitted to the church in baptism, having been brought into the church. That's what he believed this meant. But the idea here is that they've, they're in the community and they've seen the light of the gospel in a real way. Then they've tasted of the heavenly gift. That's the second characteristic here. They've experienced it, not only in an intellectual way, but they've also exper experientially, they've, they've, they've known the, the, the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Well, it's a real experience of Christ in some sense. This, this sounds like a Christian. This sounds like a true believer. I want you to see in just a moment, it's supposed to. It's supposed to sound like a true believer. What the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that this isn't a message for somebody out there who doesn't look like a true believer. This is a message for you and for me. We believe that we are true believers. We believe that we, that we know the Lord Jesus and have been saved by his grace. And the author of Hebrews is setting before us, there are those who believe that to be true but who will fall away. 
don't, don't do that. See the danger of it. So they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've, they, there's a real experience of these heavenly gifts. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've become participants or sharers in, in the Holy Spirit. This sounds, again, like a Christian. They're blessed by the gifts. But, but I want you to see, in this tasted of the heavenly gift, early commentators thought this might even be participating in communion. I, I, I believe that it's, it's more likely a, 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 an experience of the kinds of things that Christians experience. And then it's in the sharing of the Holy Spirit, uh, there are those who will share in the gifts of the Spirit, the things the Spirit brings to the church. You think of Acts chapter 8. There's a story about a man who's a magician named Simon. And you may remember it. Uh, and Simon the magician comes to, to know uh, the, the apostles to hear the word, and it looks like he has repented and believed. And, and, then, and then they come and they lay hands on him to, to give the Holy Spirit. But then Simon the magician says, please, please, I'll pay you money to be able to have that gift myself. And what the apostles say is, is that it's exposed the fact that he is not a believer. He's not truly come to faith. And they say, you're outside of the community. That, 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 that as he experienced these gifts... It was not necessarily something that meant that he was truly part of the community because his life didn't bear it out. Then, then, then it says that they have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the coming age. They've sat under the preaching of God's word. They've heard God's word. They've been shaped by it. They've actually seen the power of it. And, and throughout the Bible, word and power go together. Signs and wonders. Once again, Simon the magician saw the signs and wonders, the powers of the coming age, and yet did not believe. I want you to think about Jesus' words. So, uh, some of the other terrifying words in the Bible where Jesus in Matthew 7 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? It's a gift of the Spirit. Didn't we demonstrate a gift of the Spirit? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? Haven't we tasted of the heavenly gifts? Haven't we experienced these things? And, and what does Jesus declare to them? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Think about Saul. Saul in the Old Testament who prophesies and it says the Spirit of God rushed on him. He did these things that God gave him the power to do and yet he falls away. He's sort of the poster child in the Old Testament of apostasy. Apostasy being this idea that of, a, of someone who claims to be a believer falling away. Or think about Judas. Judas goes out, is sent out by Jesus himself and performs miracles. I think we would hear about it if Judas was the only apostle who couldn't perform miracles. But they all come back saying, we casted out demons in your name, Lord, and, and look, at, look at how nature is responding to us. Judas is there. And, and remember at the end when, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they all look and they say, Judas, we knew it all along. No, right? What do they say? They say, is it me? Y'all think it's them. Judas is so much a part of the covenant community that none of them even know. And then Judas goes and betrays the Lord himself. So in Hebrews 6, we, we see this idea 
that things can look completely like faith. You can experience and participate in all these blessings associated with salvation and yet not truly know the Lord Jesus. And that's why this passage is so hard. It's so difficult. It sounds a lot like a Christian because that's the whole point. Just like the rest of Scripture, what it's saying is it doesn't go against the teaching of the rest of Scripture that, that, that God will preserve by his grace those who he has saved. But it, but it does what so many other places in Scripture do. It warns us about falling away. We need those warnings. Part of the way that God sustains us, part of the way that God preserves us, part of the way that God keeps us in his grace is by these warnings. Is by saying, don't be one who thinks that, that, that you can rest on past obedience. Don't think you can rest on just a prayer that you prayed a long time ago. Don't think that you can rest and stop growing in the Christian life. You need to keep growing. You need to keep pressing on. You need to keep persevering. Because that's what a true believer looks like. Don't fall away. This warning is given to people who look entirely like Christians. Who look entirely like you and I who come here and sit here under God's word. This is a warning for me and for you. Don't fall away. But it says it's impossible for these, these folks to be restored to Repentance, which is maybe, the, maybe, maybe even a more difficult idea in some ways. The idea is, is here, as one commentator puts it, by not restoring those who commit apostasy, God allows their firm decision to stand. He does not force men and women against their obstinate resolve, but allows them to terminate the relationship. God doesn't work in his grace by forcing us against our wills. The way, God's work, the way God's grace works is by working in us to, to, to will to follow him. There are many questions that, you know, obviously we don't have time to answer every question that comes up with that idea, but, but, but this is what this passage is teaching, that, that as that those who have fallen away, God does not, uh, the, the idea here is that it's impossible for God, not in the sense that God could not do it, doesn't have the power to do it, but in the same way that, that it's impossible for God to lie. It's against God's character to lie. It's against God's character to, God doesn't, doesn't work by his grace in forcing people like puppets. God's grace works to renew our wills, to shape our wills. He works in our lives through us. Again, there's mystery here <laughs> that, that will not fully be resolved this side of heaven. Why can they not be restored? Well, because, because they are re-crucifying the Son of God to their own harm. They're crucifying the Son of God again, and they're publicly shaming him, just like those who initially lifted up Christ on the cross. They're looking at the Son of God, the one who, who they've tasted of his grace and what he's done for them, and they're crucifying him. They're doing the same thing those original people did, not literally, but but lifting him up to shame, saying, I reject that salvation. I reject the very Son of God. The author gives us then a picture, very quickly, of, of uh, a parable, if you will, of uh, what this looks like, what it looks like to respond to this in verses 7 and 8. And he uses the picture of a field. 
and it's reminiscent of, of Isaiah chapter 5 where God compares his people to a vineyard. And, and one of the things God says in that chapter, he says, I planted this vineyard, I watered you, I cultivated you. He says, what more could I have done? What more could I have done for my vineyard? And, and the answer is nothing. There's nothing more he could have done. It's the same thing in, the, in this chapter. Je- Jesus has been proclaimed as better, better than anything else. As the one who, who has the great salvation that you can find nowhere else. And, and God, in, in, in effect, says, what more could I have done for you? a field that produces fruit as it's supposed to, that receives a blessing from God, but a field that produces thorns and thistles. And here the author deliberately uses that same language that God uses to curse the ground in Genesis chapter 3. He says, a field that produces thorns and thistles is under a curse. It near to be cursed. The, the, the language is, even, is almost like a curse is hanging over it. The author does not leave them with just a warning but he encourages them, and we don't obviously have time to talk much about this encouragement, unfortunately. Next week is going to be a much more encouraging week, I promise. <laughs> but the author immediately gives an encouragement. He says this. What, he, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He's been talking in the third person. He's talked about those who fall away. Now he's saying, in your case, I feel sure of better things. He uses the same word here that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1 to say, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. And the author here says, I am confident of better things in you. Remember how he's been talking about throughout the epistle how Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And he's saying, I'm sure of better things for you as you hold to Jesus. So, so, so he says, that, that, that we should have confidence and rest in Jesus. In verse 10, he's sure of these things. That, and, he, and he says, God sees your works. God sees what you're doing. God sees how you're loving the saints. He says how you've been serving and how you continue to serve the saints. But then he says in, in, in verse 11, what, what does this mean for you? Well, you ought to be diligent to the end. That, that you not only should rest in the just saving God, but, but you should also be diligent to the end. He says, keep Working, I long for you not to be stagnant. I long for you not to be, uh, not to be sluggish, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promises. I want to make just very quickly, I know I'm going a little long this morning. Thank you for bearing with me. Just, just very quickly, I want to make a couple of applications of, of what we've covered. A couple of applications, short applications. The warning, first of all, is for you and for me. I know I've said this, but the war- this warning is for you and for me, and we need to hear this. A recent book that I've been reading says that 15% of American adults, that's 40 million people, used to go to church and are now de-churched. This is a trend in our culture. We need to hear this warning. You and I. And one old commentator says this. He says, gradually... We tend to slide in the Christian life until at length we rush headlong into ruin. We might begin to slide. We might begin with these, these small things, but that slide can turn into something more. We begin to fall away. We begin to stop trusting. We begin to, we begin to go to other things rather than Jesus for salvation. Don't do that. Don't see this warning as for somebody else. See this warning as for you this morning. Don't fall away. The second application is that not all backsliding is falling away. 
Not all backsliding is falling away. This isn't, this, this isn't saying that if you've, you, you shouldn't hear this passage and say, well, well, I've committed this sin and I've committed it this many times, so, uh, so uh, therefore is it impossible for God to restore me? That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to warn people against falling away, to call you back. Hey, early Christians called the, there were a few sects. One of them was uh, the Novatians that, that, that wouldn't readmit people if they had committed certain sins to the body of Christ. This, the, the, and the church said that is, that's heretical. <laughs> that's, that's wrong, false teaching. That, 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 that Jesus' grace covers those who come back to him in repentance. It's true that a believer sins, John Murray says, but he may, he may even fall to grievous sin or backslide for lengthy periods, but it's also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin, cannot come under the dominion of sin. And maybe you're worried this is you this morning as you look at this passage. Maybe you're worried this is you, but, but if you are seeking the Lord, if you're seeking repentance if you're in your life, if you're struggling with that sin that you continue to go back to, if you're struggling against it and coming back to the Lord and fighting, you, you, this is not you. This is, this is a description that's supposed to warn you of what might happen if you let yourself be completely abandoned, to go to that and to completely reject Christ. It's supposed to shape you and call you back, but it's not meant to, to, to throw you into despair. Or you may know people in your life who, who you think, maybe this is describing then. The point of this passage is, don't, is not don't pursue them. The point of this passage is, is, is to warn us, and, and we keep seeking that those who have gone away will come back. We should keep pursuing them, that they might come back, that they might really have true faith, and that maybe their going away is a temporary backsliding, a temporary going away from, from the Christian faith, but we long for them to come back. We long for them to come back to the Lord. We should also see in this passage that real growth is hard work. It's hard work. It's pers- it takes perseverance. It's called perseverance. It's not called the, the doctrine, as people have put it, sometimes they've called it assurance or, or security, this idea that God will save us to the end. But, but the better way to put it is a doctrine of perseverance, that God works in us perseverance, that we might persevere to the end, not that we can rest and sit back. He works holiness in your life. So you and I need to work to seek holiness in our life. And we need to do this together. We need to do this in community. The very last thing he says in this passage is that, that he wants you to be imitators imitators of each other. One of my good friends says, moral formation cannot be practiced by lone wolves or solitary spiritual giants. Human formation is a team sport. But finally, I want you to see real growth depends on God's grace. Real growth takes hard work, but it also depends on God's grace. First Peter says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith. It's not about just, just pulling, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing better. It's, it, it's God's power. It's the certainty of God's promises. It's God's faithfulness that your salvation depends on. Growing in the Christian life isn't, isn't just about becoming more moral or more cleaned up or just working harder. Growing in the Christian life is about learning to depend on the one who can hold you. Don't go back to those, those, that, that, that self-assurance that you might want to have, that, the, that, that I think I can do it myself, but go to the Lord. John Newton wrote in his famous him. He said, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He says, it will lead me home. Friends, let us learn to rest in God's grace. 
one who will lead us home. Even as we see this warning and we, and we say, Lord, help. Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. I need you. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, this is a hard passage. This is difficult. And, and, and Lord, as we, as we, as we look at, at the words that you have given us here, what we see clearly is that we, we cannot rest in our own strength. We are in utter need of your grace. So help us, Lord, each one of us. Help me. Help us not to, not to just act as if we can, we can stop growing and hold on to some former way that things were, but help us to keep knowing you more, keep pursuing you, because we do not want to be those who fall away, Lord. You are, you are the Lord of the universe, the Lord of life. So help us, Lord, help us to cling to you, help us to hold on to you, help us to have faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing.